0: Welcome to week 29 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. This week, it is the turn of the last of the Victorian novelists that I regularly reread. I realised, as I was checking through the list of novels, that I have not included any mention of the Brontes, or of that great pre-Victorian novelist Jane Austen, nor of any of the European giants of 19th century literature, Stendhal, Zola, Hugo, Tolstoy, Balzac. This isn't because I don't admire them, However, I would not describe any of them, including Austen, as comforting reads that I return to regularly. Jane Austen's canvas may be small, but her view is needle-sharp, and much as I love her work, particularly Persuasion, I turn to her not for warmth and heart, but for moral clarity. My final Victorian is a very different sort. Born in 1815, the year of Waterloo, he shares with Dickens a difficult childhood, his father was a tricky man, his bad temper driving away any clientele interested in his legal skills, and also an inept farmer, a man with expectations of an inheritance which then fell through. He amassed debt that was only gradually paid off by his talented wife, the writer Francis or Fanny Trollope. Antony was left in school when Francis went with her three younger children to America. Poor, friendless, a lumbering and clumsy fellow... Antony was mercilessly bullied at first Harrow and then Winchester. Antony Trollope as a young man initially seemed as feckless and incompetent as his father. When the family decamped to Belgium to escape their creditors, he was 19 and managed to wangle himself some work in the post office, but was chaotic with both his professional life and the little money he earned. Rude, sloppy, indebted, regularly late, he was about to be fired when he wangled a move to Ireland aged 26 and there, at last, found his feet. No longer a clerk, Trollope's work as a postal surveyor was far more active and interesting. He began paying back his debts, met his future wife and started writing his first sketches and short stories, based first in Ireland, then four Irish novels that were published with middling success, but sufficient for him to enter marriage able to support his wife. During the 1850s, Trollope continued to combine his work for the post office with his novel writing, enjoying his first major success in in 1859 with Framley Parsonage. He's best known for two cycles, The Barchester Chronicles, set in and around the fictional city of Barchester, which is modeled somewhat on Salisbury, and The Palliser Novels, which explore the social and political fortunes of the Palliser family and their relatives. The Palliser novels were turned into a BBC TV series in the 1970s, but I remember better The Barchester Chronicles, adapted in 1982, with amazing performances from a wonderful cast. Sadly, now most no longer with us, including Alan Rickman, Nigel Hawthorne and Geraldine McEwan. I didn't start reading Trollope immediately, that began when I started work and was commuting by tube on the horrendous northern line where, however early I rose, the carriages always seemed packed. I began reading Trollope as light relief from the claustrophobia. I have read 18 of the novels and reread several of those more than once, particularly the Barchester Chronicles, but I really love Izzy Poppenjoy. In fact, I love it so much that I've mapped out a sequel, one-third written, and still not finished decades since I first imagined it. Is He Popinjoy is a book with marriage at its heart. Arguably, it is an anti-romance, for romantic novels must end with at least one marriage, restoring order after social upheaval, and the happy ever after remains a mirage shimmering off stage. But here, the marriages take place early, and Trollope examines several, the central match is between Mary Lovelace, the pretty, intelligent and above all wealthy daughter of Dean Lovelace, and George Germain, the dull younger brother of the Marquis of Brotherton. Then there is the marriage made by the woman that George Germain thinks he actually loves, the serpentine Adelaide Houghton, who encoils him in a flirtation that opens the way for Mary herself to form friendships with a range of feminists, and the attractive Captain Jack de Baron. Jack de Baron himself is trying his best to avoid marriage with Miss Augusta Mildmay. Then there is the marriage that sets the whole society of the book by its ears the union between the Marquess of Brotherton, a louche, cruel narcissist, and a silent Italian woman who may or may not be a countess and indeed may or may not be a legitimate wife. The Marchioness, Caterina Luigi, bears a son, a sickly child, tainted by the nameless condition suffered by both his parents, which could be syphilis, although that, naturally in a 19th century novel, is never spelled out. None of these marriages are particularly satisfactory or romantic. Mary and George's marriage is transactional. She is rich and he is of noble birth. Mary herself is not particularly interested in George's family background, but her father is very happy to see his daughter married into the aristocracy. Adelaide marries Horton, a friend of her father's, wealthy and apparently amused by his vivacious, seductive wife, complacent and almost proud of her wiles. As for Brotherton, he marries, or claims to be married, primarily to cut George out. Brotherton views his younger brother as a dull stick, his mother, the Dowager Marchioness, and his spinster sisters as tedious creatures and wishes to upset them all as far as his natural indolence will allow. George, his mother and sisters have all been living at Manor Cross, the Brotherton country seat, caring for it, managing the land, looking after the tenants. When Brotherton returns from Italy with his wife and sickly baby, he makes it plain that they can no longer call Manor Cross their home. Spiteful, vicious and unkind, unhappy because he does not particularly wish to be in England, he is quite determined to make his family similarly unhappy. Is he Popinjoy intrigued me from the start because nearly all the women are individual, wayward and determined. Mary, the primary protagonist, initially seems insipid, but rebels, first against her snooty, self-denying sisters-in-law, who scold her when she suggests that rather than spend her time making petticoats for the poor, she pays someone to sew these and then donates the petticoats, thus saving her time and ensuring the poor, whoever they may be, receive better quality, quality petticoats, since sewing is not her forte. Then she rebels against her husband, who, hypocritically, seeks to defend his friendship with Adelaide Horton whilst condemning Mary's rather more innocent interaction with Jack de Baron. Adelaide herself is a grand character. She is a blatant gold digger. She does not love George Germain and would never consider marriage with him, but she basks in his admiration. It is a testament to Mary's grit that she fights back when Adelaide seeks to patronise her And steal the attention of her husband. Then there is Horton's sister, a wealthy single woman in her forties, quite determined to maintain her independence whilst enjoying the courtships and amours of the young people around her, along with her friend Mrs. Montacute Jones, always trying to bring couples together. Trollope's travels exposed him to all sorts of characters, but it is clear from his writing that he had a keen eye not simply for different personalities and types but also for the variety of ways in which we humans react and interact. After Dickens's cloying young women and George Eliot's virtuous and noble heroines, Trollope's clear-eyed, amused tone, his delineation of human foibles and gift for plausible dialogue are all a joy. This book embodies the Trollope technique. There is some sense of place. But Brotherton could be any middling cathedral city from Lincoln to Worcester to Lichfield. London is a backdrop to conversations and meetings which move the plot on. Much is revealed through dialogue and chit-chat and what really matters is the impact of one's personal words on another. One of my favourite exchanges is when Mary complains to her father after George has scolded her for attending a meeting run by some early feminists. Mary is rather indignant but her father says... If he says a cross word now and again, just let it go by. You should not suppose that words always mean what they seem to mean. I knew a man who used to tell his wife ever so often that he wished she were dead. Good heavens, Papa! Whenever he said so, she always put a little magnesia into his beer, and things went on as comfortably as possible. Never magnify things, even to yourself. I don't suppose Lord George wants magnesia as yet, but you will understand what I mean. The central question of the title, "Is he popinjoy?" is a reference to the sickly infant the Marquis and Marchioness bring to Brotherton. Popinjoy is the hereditary title of the heir to Brotherton, and the question is couched in tones of consternation and doubt for the baby's legitimacy is questioned. This has particular weight for Mary. If the baby is not legitimate but recognised as such by the Marquis, then she and George must make their way in the world on their own terms. But if the baby is not formally recognised, if the marriage between Brotherton and Catarina Luigi is a sham, then George will inherit both Manor Cross and the Brotherton title. The Dean, Mary's father, is hugely invested in this, recruiting lawyers and investigators to probe the Marquis's life, his wife, and his child. The climax comes when the Marquis provokes the Dean into fisticuffs by insulting Mary. Once he has been knocked down by the Dean, Brotherton retreats to Italy, where he dies some months later, aged only 44. The Dean's happiness, when his son-in-law accedes to the Brotherton title, is exceeded only when Mary gives birth to their first child, a boy, known as Frederick Augustus Tallowax Germain, or Lord Popinjoy. The book ends with Mary and George leading contented lives. Popinjoy is a mischievous five-year-old with two younger sisters, Lady Mary and Lady Sarah. Adelaide Houghton has been cast out of the Marchioness's circle utterly despite the best attempts of mutual friends to effect a reconciliation. But in Mary's mind, Adelaide is a toad, a nasty, degraded, painted Jezebel and any attempt to bring together the two women is doomed to intensify her loathing of Mrs Houghton. I could not help, when I first read the book, wondering what would happen if popenjoy somehow encountered a daughter of Mrs Houghton and brought her back to Manor Cross as his fiancée. I wrote about eight chapters of how they might have met, how they might have fallen in love, and how Adelaide Houghton's daughter might have been received by the implacable Mary and, in various moves, managed to misplace the half-finished manuscript. But in our latest move, I found the pages I had written. Of course, it needs finishing, editing, redrafting, but hooray, I have the opportunity finally to complete a story that has hovered in imaginative ether for decades. Join me next week for the halfway mark of these podcasts in which I'll be taking a look at Tom Stoppard's best play, the exquisite tragicomedy, Arcadia join me then.